Welcome to Luke's Talk Wine. My name is Luke, and I work for a big wine company. And my name is Luke, and I work for a small wine company. And today we're going to talk about buying wine of your company. How do you choose the wines that you need to buy for your customers? Uh, because that's slightly different to buying it just for an individual person. Um, and also we've got a question about what to do when your friends like the wines that you supply, which is going to be slightly different to the wines they usually drink. But Ooh. as always, we start off with what's been happening in your wine world this week, pal Luke Campbell. Well, thank you very, very, very much. And hello to the listening audience. Luke Morris, well, this week... This week I've been struck down by the much vaunted champagne drought of 2021. <laughs> it, is, yeah. it, it is it is real people. So I got to yeah. after last is that, week's is episode. That why, sorry to interrupt, <sighs> but just before we started this uh, this this thing, um, I said I'm going to press record. You said okay, and then I heard a can crack. And I thought, is he on a beer? Is, is the champagne drought forced Luke Campbell to beer? What's going, what are you drinking? No, no, I'm not uh, drinking beer. I'm having a uh, can of, uh, actually, it's a can of soda water because I couldn't find uh, my normal sparkling water, which I have during the show. I don't know Fair why enough. I'm drinking sparkling water during the show because we should be drinking wine. It's our last show of the year, Luke Morris. It is. We should have uh, worked this out better and we should have found a the inaugural bottle of Gandry Unwooded Chardonnay. And uh, <laughs> divided, d- divided it up between the two of us. Uh, something in aged. Spi- something aged in the spirits of uh, Luke's Talk Wine and uh, and had a glass of unwooded Chardonnay of the Gowdery hey. variety. But, but we haven't done that. I'm, in fact, having a small can of Schweppes soda water because it's a mixer in my fridge at the moment. There wasn't anything else. No, um, I think I, I, I can't think of a better... Well, apart from the glass of Riesling, I couldn't think of a better... Uh, uh, way to end the year than with uh, Australia's premium Chablis style white <laughs> than Gandhi's Unwinded But I did interrupt you about uh, cracking into champagne because yes, the, um, I, I the was thing. so um, I was so invested in what we were talking about last last week in last week's show about you know what we put on our table for Christmas and I thought <gasps> it's Christmas week here I've got to get organised I've, I've got to get myself. Uh, some some champagnes. I've got to get myself sorted because you know, as we've spoken on this podcast uh, many times, if you're not drinking Riesling, you're always starting a good meal with a glass of bubbles. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I went out to buy my beloved Bilcar Semon um, Brut Reserve from the very very famous importer who I've got a great relationship with over the years. <gasps> Only to be told there is none. There's none in the country. There's none coming. Uh, there is none, none, none here, none there, nada, zip, niente, none. And it's caused a big flowing effect. So this is um, a vintage issue. Did, what, what, what was on the vintage issue? I'm assuming it's just lack of grapes. What was it, drought or rain or frost or wind or because uh, you can have berry, poor berries set or just lack of fruit, all kinds of things. Do, do you know what was the? Oh, there, well, there, there's a number of drought. There's a number of factors, but... Yes, like the, the so-called drought really appears to be a double-edged sword for Champagne. Like they became a victim of its own massive growth and obviously they expanded yep. the boundaries of how, where you could produce it. Um, oh, yeah. 
and they expanded it. Gee, when did they expand that? Maybe May 2019 prior to COVID. And so if they're producing more non-vintage wine, let's use non-vintage, which I was looking for a bottle of Bill Cart Brut non-vintage. What happens is if they're producing more wine, they need a more uh, larger reserve of the base wine to go in it. For those listeners who don't know, non-vintage champagne has a base wine, which has several vintages in it. Uh, and if you've only got so much, there's, and you, but you're producing more wine, more base wine, uh, there's not enough reserve base to go in it. So what happened then is they increased production. Sure, happy, 2019, 2020. And in that first part of lockdown, kind of when people's, sure, drinking went up, but what they weren't spending on is the finer things in life until much later in the pandemic. Yep. And their champagne have been a victim of their own success because then in the second half of the lockdown and the pandemic, people were indulging in the finer things in life and have been gobbling up everything from champagne to caviar to you know top flight Bordeaux and Barolos. But champagne has been a big victim. And then on the back of that, the third party to that is the the shipping and the cost of it, um, which has been an absolute unmitigated Oh, shipping disaster. to Australia. Disaster. And, yeah. Well, there's, there's been costs with that because of um, uh, COVID and, and, and freight has just um, uh, impacted dock workers in, in various various ways. You mentioned that people actually drank more sitting at home, so they therefore drinking more champagne indulging in the finer things because you've got to give yourself a, a joy in some way while you're um, uh, trapped at home yep. so that that stands to reason so drinks went up but what do we do now what what, what what's the next best thing i mean you were talking about lack of champagne i thought that's fine because there's plenty of uh begonia cremant there's there's some good oh, stuff of that coming around there's some good absolutely carvers. so yeah you could Polishing. go you could go with you could go with Carver, absolutely. I'm a big fan of uh, French Accorda uh, in, in Italy. But I actually went just to, to my old favourite um, down in Tasmania in Pipers River. I actually just went to Clover Hill. And I could have oh. bought their, their standard Clover Hill Brut Non-Vintage, but it yep. is Christmas. So I bought their Vintage, uh, you know, which is you know $55 retail, utterly outstanding. You know, just comes from one of the most picturesque vineyards. Mm. overlooking uh, Piper's Brook down there, and that'll be me uh, for Christmas Day, Luke Morris. That's what I'll be leading in with. Uh, I bought a couple of bottles of that to stick under the Christmas tree for myself and my lovely wife and family, and uh, that'll be what we'll be toasting with. So I avoided the whole uh, champagne I love disaster. That got, I love that you've got a bottle for for your wife and your family because you, you, your kids are too young to drink, so you're going to have to take one of those off, off them. Well, you know, just... It's share and share alike, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> it's drink responsibly. If they if they won't want to open that present, well then you know maybe after lunch. Daddy, we Daddy can open. do it. Yeah, Daddy might be able to do it. <laughs> Absolutely, but I mean this this is a um a bit of a serious situation because I bet I'm not the only listener that has been affected by this so called champagne drought. Yes, well, it's, I know of some customers of mine. The, the premium men, as as you discussed, there's difference between the NVs and the uh, prestige production. And mm-hmm. well, if something wines already in limited supply, uh, low 
production in that prestige, you know, $100 plus sort of champagne region. So if it's already limited, it's going to get more scarce due to yep. all the factors we've discussed. But I don't know, if you've got widened uh, growing areas, that must open the door for a few smaller producers as well. There's There's been plenty of new or unknown um, champagne houses have come across into Australia in the last six months or so, I think, just filling the gap. Oh, Hopefully without the quality a doubt. Still there. Know, yeah, well, the quality is there. Like the, the, the champagne boundaries, like between, I think I said 2019 earlier, but it might have been 2000, May 2017, they, like the, they literally increased the boundaries of champagne by forty percent to include um, extra growing areas to um, c- counteract is, the glut in supply. So there is a lot more producers that, uh, now. Is that to, was that led by the big boys of uh, uh, Verve and Bollinger and Louis and uh, all the all the other Tattinger big names, Mum, Tattinger, yeah. just oh, because they it, need to keep pushing was, their um, margins. No, 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 not at all. It was just in, in general. It was the the Champagne Bureau just just knowing full well, looking into the future, that they're not demand will far outstrip supply. Uh, I, I think the article I read in Decanter actually in last month's Decanter, they, they the reason behind it, the sole reason behind it was basically they were looking at not you know a hundred years or fifty years. They were looking one decade, ten years ahead. Yep. And they deduced that demand will far outweigh supply by about 50%. Ooh. And so they needed to either plant more, which there was no more room, or they needed to grow <laughs> more. And so effectively they reached a compromise and they extended the boundaries of Champagne, which is the first time ever um, that any AOC, um, a big, big button, the Champagne AOC has extended their boundaries. Many suppose- other... Many other AOCs have extended boundaries. The Loire, for instance, the Jura um, have extended the boundaries to make more wines, but it's the first time Champagne, the Champenoise have ever done it. I suppose that's a prudent thing to look at 10 years when you consider the fact they need a base stock to blend with. So you yes. need to be able to establish enough base wine in order to meet demand. Otherwise, yep. y- your product will decline. And... I suppose that this this is the curly question of whether uh, Australian champagnes and sparkle or champagne versions, champenoise, method champenoise productions, sparklings, meet the quality of uh, French champagne, traditional French champagne, um, because they just don't have the base stock, they just don't have the history, they just don't have, they don't spend as much time in barrel. How, how do you approach the the question of Australian stuff not being as good as the tradition. My, my response to that, Luke Morris, is that Australia can absolutely complete compete on the world stage, and we've seen that with the likes of Ed Cars, Arras, Clover Hills. Yep. Clover Hills is a great example, and several other smaller producers. We can compete, but we can never emulate you know, the chalk soils or the climactic influence that Champenoise the Champenoise regions have. And nor should I think we should try. You know, we can use their techniques, but our fruit is always going to be of a different flavour. Like, I think we can peak. Mm. I don't necessarily think we need to emulate um, 
you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, like our, our whiskies, for want of a better uh, analogy, our, our whiskies here, whether it be a bourbon or single malt or whatever, they're they're taking influence from ye olde worldy, but they're not, uh, they're no longer trying to emulate. They're standing out on their own, and I think our method traditional wines have to do that as well. They're just, and the, the Tasmanian wines are, you know, they, they really are a class act, whether it's, hmm. you know, wh- whoever it might be from down there, whether it's be Natalie Fry's Belbonnet or Jantz or uh, the wonderful guys at um, Next Door to Clover Hill, husband and wife, we sell a lot of their Delamere Rosé Brut, oh, yeah. which is just exquisite, Fran and Shane's uh, winery there. Um, but no matter who it is, Clover Hill, they, they, these guys all stand up, um, you know, why are you throwing names out there? Yeah. Why aren't you throwing names out there? Here's a name that I haven't seen around the shops for a while, and I wonder if you can uh, um, figure out, like we discussed with Rosemount Estate, what happened to. Where's oh, Hanging yeah. Rock at these days? Are they still. Oh, well, would you. Yeah. Pushing, okay. pushing around the, the boat? Well, it's funny you should say that. Most recently, I had a reserve wine from Hanging Rock. It was yeah. a Heathcote Shiraz. Yep, um, they, they had that cracker Heathcote Shiraz. That was yes. a tricky wine. And this wine was a cracker, you know, ha- having had a strong affiliation with um, you and I both, actually Wild Nut Creek over the years, yep. loving the wines coming out of Heathcote, whether it be Jasper Hill or Whistling Eagle or uh cerami adam foster cerami there's a lot of stonking great producers out there hanging rock is a winery and i had this very conversation with the person who brought it around to my house that i haven't seen for nigh on a decade but this 2016 hanging rock reserve shiraz from heathcote was absolutely outstanding but to answer your question luke morris where has it been it's been in the winery wilderness i haven't seen it on a shelf for a, a long, long time. So whether it gets all exported or whether it goes to, um, whether it gets sold. I can't imagine it's all mail list. I can't imagine that either. Um, yeah, Particularly gee, I... at one point, they were really pushing themselves as Australia as well. Bollinger, with the, with the winemaking style for their sparkling, they were quite uh, bullish about being a good sparkling producer and to be honest with you i really really love their sparkling i recommended it many 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 times I just because they had, they had that one the the sparkling which came out of macedon that was on lees for 27 months is that what you talk yep. about oh yep. there was that they, they also had their cuvee um but uh which is just blends but anyway it was labeled as cuvee and then they had the yeah. l late late to scorched late to LD, scorched, that's it and yeah, that yeah. came in the um uh, canary cage mm-hmm. i think yep Oh, yeah, yeah gee, uh, it's a it's a very good question. It's a, a one to put in the Goundry unwooded, um, in the Rosemount folder. Just uh, it might be, this might be a question that we have to plot into uh, future episodes. Where are they now? Some of these famous wineries that we used to uh, know and love are they still ticking around, or are they all gone export, or what, what's become of them? Yes, there's, a, a, few, there's a, a few like that. That is a very good uh, topic for another day, Luke Morris. And but this if, week's if, topic, we should. Well, this did week's you have another topic. Top, yeah. 
what so what I was going to get at is if if you have a question, whether it be for this series or next series, because we're about to take a series break, um, send it to us. And Luke, you can send it to us where. Uh, Luke's talk wine at gmail.com. So and you had a question. We had a question, but I was going to ask about the, the topic because. Um... Hi, this is Luke Morris from Luke's Talk Wine. I've written some books, so visit lukemorrisha.com.au. Go there, see the books, buy one, support the podcast. That's lukemorrisha.com.au. L-U-K-E-M-O-R-R-I-S-H-A.com.au. Have a great day. Uh, I'm doing a few different things at the moment, and one of them might be uh, getting into the world of wine buying for the company I'm at. And I just thought it would be fun to to float how you have to adjust your thinking cap when you're Mm -hmm. buying wine for a company. Now, you buy wine for your company, Mm -hmm. and do you – have to do you do anything really too different when you think about buying wine for all of your consumers versus buying wine just for yourself? Uh, d- definitely. So if if you if you're buying wine and you know at Vinified we work with we we do all manner of things. We do buy wine for consumers. We also buy wines for uh, you know re- restaurants and uh, hotels. So we might write a wine list. And yeah, you do have to slightly adjust your thinking. If you're buying wine um, for consumers straight up, you know, you're obviously thinking about their tastes. Uh, but if you're buying wines um, for a restaurant or a hotel, you've really got to think about a lot more. You've got to think about a much diverse group of tangents, whether it be price, Luke Morris, whether it be on trend, whether it mm. be a wine that can is easily saleable, you know, and I say saleable, you might want to list a Barossa Shiraz and you could list a Mr. Riggs or you could list a Torbrek or you could list um, a Koleski Estate. Like they are all three wonderful, wonderful producers, but one of them, and they all make $25 wines, which would easily be listed on a, wine list for a Barossa Shiraz class. However, one of those brands has way more cachet than the other. And so yeah, so think, that's, that's a big thing that, when you're thinking about that kind of stuff because the sellability of a wine is annoyingly important uh, compared to the actual quality of it sometimes. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you were buying wine for a, a company, um you, you really have to think about things differently. Do you know what one thing? Yeah, one thing I had to I had discussed with a customer was we were talking about buying wines, and I basically said at the end of the day because I knew that she was serving it for a group of people. I said, "Do you know what this option, this wine here, that label looks fantastic," and she said, "Sold," because <laughs> that was an influencing factor. And I knew it was going to be, and it, it, it is. You, you Sometimes you do drink with your eyes. You, we've discussed yeah. uh, the point that if you put a wine into a, um, a, a, a blind tasting glass, which is effectively black, so you can't see what colour the wine is, that will influence your interpretation yeah. of the wine just as much as looking at the label does. I, I think that's an important element, sadly, but it's true. 
People, very, very people true, would love yeah. to people would love to believe that when you're buying wine for a shop your number one concern is the quality you, you do have to buy things that people will buy ultimately yes and so going back to go forward the three p's of buying wine are simply and you've nailed one of them there is packaging yep the second one is provenance and the third one is pricing and these are all three p's incredibly important as each other but they all have a significant effect when you're buying wine in bulk for a company because they're the first three factors that the end user i.e the drunk uncle or the the bottle shop or uh the you know the saturday night consumer whoever it may whoever whoever it may is going to consider those things first. They're going to consider where it's from, what it looks like, and what it's going to cost me. Uh, well, so they... I, I, had, I had the chat with a customer earlier, and I, I said, um, uh, good Shiraz, good full-bodied. I knew it was exactly in the four-pack of the type of thing they'd been buying before. I was like, this is, this is it. Um, and uh, I said, where's it from? And I said, the Clare Valley. And I said, have you got anything from the Clare Vale? <laughs> Now, I had no problem with that question because I knew that that's a very normal reaction. Yep. But provenance. People will pick up a bottle, uh, rosé. Where's the rosé from? If it's from um, Provence, you're 90% of the way there to selling that wine. Yep. It's from anywhere else. You've got to convince them, them, the, the general public, that there's there's a reason to get it. Yes, and it has to be absolutely. better than the fact that if, if it's from Languedoc or if it's from it's just a Vindapaz or if it's from the Kunawa, why? Why is it that? Why is it not from Provence? What are you telling me? <laughs> mm, that's it. So, and, and I guess, you know, if you're buying wine for a company and you've considered all those three things, there isn't else, anything else too much to play. I mean, you might want to think about seasons, um, vintage. Uh, we, we had a we had a question earlier. Sorry, we didn't talk about seasons. Oh, you're going. I thought you were going to talk about seasons as in weather, but you're talking about time of year you're buying, aren't you? Yep, I am. That's exactly right. So yeah, um, the the time of year you're buying and uh, yeah, w- when that wine's going to land, when that wine's going to arrive. Vintages is. I, I think vintages is a massive oxymoron because you a lot of you know, 2005 in Burgundy, you know, I was working for a, a prominent retailer here in Australia buying wines when those 05 Burgundies were released. Yep. Upon Which is release, one of the cracking vintages from memory. Absolutely. It's one of the yep. crack, most the best vintages in the last two decades out of Burgundy. At the time, you know, there, there was there's never enough to go around. And, you know, so we, we loaded up, I, we, we, we bought a lot and steadily over time we trickled them out. But 06 came around and 06 was, it wasn't rubbish, but it was severely affected by weather. Well, mm-hmm. the, the, the buying of the consumer was unrelenting. It was the same because it was on the back of 2005, consumers against all public vote and whatever they read in their wine magazines or whatever, still bought just as much as the 06 and 07s as what they did 05. And the 06, I've drunk, I've drunk a lot of my 06s because they all just, it was like the 99 
Um, oh, that know, 99 Paradise. vintage. Oh. Yeah, exactly. It was like, <laughs> I haven't had as much burgundy as you. So it was a bit of bit of a bit of a um, a bit of a paradox. So people just bought as so much more of the 06 and what they did of the 05. It was the same price, if not more expensive, but it was from a much lesser vintage Luke Morris. And so I really think vintage is a bit of an oxymoron. It's not for you and I, and you and I might, you know, sort out the great wines and the best vintages for our cellar. But the general consumer, unless they follow a particular winery, whether it is, you know, Mr. Riggs or, or, or Torbreck or Wild Duck Creek or Jasper Hill or Tyrrells or Hanging Rock, whether if, unless they follow, follow a particular producer they're not um they're not going to be put off or put on moreover by a vintage that's an interesting thing i think you're right the producer and those sorts of things and, and the region t- seems to overplay the uh, vintage I, I remember as the example being sonberg and i I'm going to have a stab. I believe it was the 2011 release, though I might be wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But Sonberg, um, uh, 2011 was a, a damaged year throughout a lot of Victoria for, I think it was a lot of bushfires and also drought inflicting um, issues. Yep. And Sonberg still released a wine. I believe that they did discount it, but they released it under the Sonberg label notice to people that it was impacted but saying that this is our vintage this is representative of what happens that year ergo it's just the 2011 vintage it's like 2010 it's like 2009 if you love those wines it's different and it still sold well because i know a lot of people who bought it basically because they love solenberg and they were interested they wanted to know what this year was like for, for the, the wines that they love. And it wasn't up to scratch. Obviously, and Simon put their hand up about it or, or credit to them. Mm. But the production still was more important to people and seeing that production than being totally turned off by the year that was on the label. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, that's, that's probably... A, a great topic you know like because does that affect your brand um or does that further entrench sorenberg as being a real brand with high wine integrity you know like i'm probably in the latter camp but some people will be like oh no it just damages the brand because i don't want to drink slop but you know as, oh, as that's an agricultural it. i know producer, other wineries some, someone like um Giaconda created the clay road label because they didn't think it was of worthy of their Giaconda that vintage was really yep. off their Geoconda label. That was back now, in 09, wasn't it? They, they released uh, it. Was it specifically in 09, maybe? Yep. The, the bushfire year. Yep. But, um, yeah, it was an interesting interesting thing. But yeah. there's a lot of things you got to consider when you're buying wine for a company because, yeah, like you said, that's really true. I, 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 I've forgotten some of those elements, but they're the all three, there. The three Ps, packaging, pricing, and provenance, they're the, th- they're the things you need to look out for. And they're for different, different levels of the, of the organisation, different levels of customers will be interested in different levels of wine. And mm. sadly, of those three pre's, none of them had to do with the palate. No. But, I mean, obviously that comes into it, but it's, it's interesting that it's not one of the top threes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Let's have, let's have a stab quickly at the, the question this week, which is about what do we do when we have a, uh, a wine that our friends like. Now, this is uh, actually a question that I thought of, and I wasn't mm. upset because uh, I'll give you the backstory. I'll, I'll let you know what I'll, I'll let you have a swing. If you're yes. at a dinner table and you open up a bottle of wine with your friends, and let's just say arbitrarily that that wine was a $30 wine. You opened up a $30 wine to share with your friends. Yep. But they usually drink and consume things in the $10 to $15 price point. Now, they taste your wine, and they suddenly go, whoa, that's good. Mm. What do you do next, Luke Campbell? It's it's a really good question. I mean, I I always have a a a rule like if I'm going to a dinner party that's not a wine dinner, we've discussed how to and how not to do wine dinners on the program before. <laughs> uh, but if if I'm going, you know, if I'm just going around to you know one of the basketball dad's house or whatever, and I don't really, you know, as as I mentioned on this podcast before, I don't really drink a lot of beer, so I take wine, and they like my wine over their wine. I, I my rule is. I always take something between that thirty to fifty dollar range because it's probably yep. some of the best value drinking. Uh, not to big note myself, or not to, um, ah, yes. not, you know, not to be hoi polloi or whatever, or an ass, make an ass of myself, just because I know whatever it is, it's going to be good value drinking, and it's probably going to be, you know, good. It's not. Seventy or a hundred dollars for people go. Oh, look at you! You know, Mister Wine Wanker. Yeah. And it's not. Yep. It's not going to be slop that I. It's not going to be cheap that I bought off the back of a truck with somebody. You know, opening their jacket, going, "What do you want? Prosecco, Carver, you know, <laughs> anything like that." It's. It's actually something, right? And that's my rule. And the reason I do that, for the reasons I've outlined there, is just so it sits. It's always going to be good drinking. If they like my wine more than the next person. I just probably talk to them. I never, ever talk about price. I just always talk to them about quality and generally the producer and also the store, uh, the, the, sorry, this not the store, the story behind the yes. wine. The, the really important thing to know is when you're taking, a, like anything, a gift, whether it be a pavlova or, or whether it be a, some flowers or whatever, you just you just know the story behind it, like, and if you know the story behind your wine, it goes a long way into um, explaining to people why they like that wine better than the ten dollar muck that they might have bought from a big company. <laughs> well, that's that's true. I, I I think that's a good tip. I, from memory, that's what I did. I did only I talked about the store the story of the wine and and why. Um, I, I bought it because I knew we were having some uh, paella, so I bought a nice Spanish albarino, mm. and um, uh, I did talk about you know this this wine is is comes from the town of where that meal was sort of inspired by, and that's why I bought it, and and that's why I thought it was a good match. It is does pose the question though, which is what I thought about as the bottle started to trickle down. The next. I only bought that one bottle and I didn't have anything else and the next one was not going to be as good. Campbell, who gets the last drink? Well, I think if it's your bottle, somebody else gets the last drink. Oh, no. (laughs) That's not the answer. I want the last drink of the good stuff. Well, the, the, the old, my family, my family are onto it now, but coming up to Christmas, I, I always used to, I used to open, open a bottle and tell everybody how good that bottle was and just leave that bottle on the table and people would start getting into it going, yeah, that, that's really good. 
and then I'd, I'd open another bottle that was different and usually of much better quality and go, oh, gee, I really prefer <laughs> the first bottle. And then, and then just keep that second bottle off to the side and just have a very happy afternoon. So if you're looking for a trick to uh, avert the eyes, that's the best one. Take two bottles, tell everyone how good the first bottle is, and then open the second bottle. <laughs> so you got the crowd pleaser and the you pleaser. That's it. You better believe it. Oh, um, but you know, it, it, that that's that that is uh, you know that, that's the tip for the the winos amongst us. But the the other tip there too, Luke Morris is, you know, wine is there to be shared. Always drink the good bottles first. You know, I, I hate people. You go to a dinner party and you, you're drinking. The, you're not drinking the best bottles first because inevitably what happens is your three sheets to the wind by the time the good stuff comes out and nobody remembers it. And uh, that is just <laughs> absolute vinicide, as it's called in the industry. Always drink the good bottles first, always. That just reminds me of dinners we've had where we've woken up the next day and looked at the bottles on the table and thought, did we drink that? Yeah. Was that good? <laughs> That's it. Always drink the good bottles first. Um, good, good tip. No, I think I think one tip that you've you've you brought to my attention is to uh, bring more than one bottle because if oh, I know yeah. I'm going to like it, and in order to share freely and also be satisfied, <laughs> I need more than a bottle's worth. Yes, it is the you pleaser. I think you've so coined the phrase, and it's exactly what it is. It's the you pleaser. It's the secondary bottle off to the side. Open with much less fanfare. <laughs> much less fanfare. <laughs> Love it. Um, oh, man. I'll tell you this. What I did on the weekend was with my friends, I because uh, I have friends, so I need to, mm. need to point out I did it with friends, everybody. You know, mm. drunk drunk old Uncle Luke here, who's been made fun of a few times on this podcast, does have friends. Um, <laughs> I'm not uh, making fun. We've never made fun. Oh, I felt like it. Um, what did what did I do? I, I I told you about my friends who I bought a decanter for, and because yes. uh, when we went there and they didn't have a decanter, and when I got there on the weekend, they had the decanter that was out there filled with water and some uh, flowers stuck inside of it. Oh, so I was I was a bit of a uh, uh, you know it's, I was a bit of a loss to what to decant my bottle of red into. And then I just looked around and said, do you have a jug? And they said, yes. And they pointed at the other vase-shaped instrument that was uh, covered and filled with water with flowers in it. And so I just pulled open a drawer and saw a, um, uh, what's a sort of aluminium, not aluminium type bowl, one of those cooking, metal cooking bowls. Yes. I just thought, well, that's just a big surface area. That will do. I just poured it, like, the bottle of wine straight into one of those. <laughs> Any vessel will do, ladies and gentlemen. Any vessel will do. They thought it was ridiculous and took photographs, and hopefully I'll try and grab one off them. But uh, we're drinking a, a, a nice uh, Beaujolais ox- aerated in a, in a large cooking vessel. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that, you know, you've nailed it there. You just need to expose the surface area to oxygen, you know, in any way, shape or form, whether it is a, a large bowl, whether it is a, a flower vase, whether it is a jug, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily need to be one flash decanter. And we've spoken about that oh. on this podcast before, but 
Um, I'm glad you fancy, still, but gosh, it was easy to clean. I bet. <laughs> I'm glad you're still decanting uh, young wines, Luke Morris, because people need to do more of that, I think. Oh, goodness, right. Uh, speaking of drinking wines, what are you drinking at the moment, mate? Or are you drinking some softy drink, which is very fair and, and sensible, but uh, any, any wines past your palate patiently and you've uh, puckered pack it up and uh, which to uh, promote? <laughs> uh, well, ha- have I puck it up? Have many wines passed my mouth and have I puck it up? Um, I've done all of those things, but uh, recently on Luke's Talk Riesling, what did I have actually? I had a glass of the 2017 Jean-Marc Roger Sancerre yesterday actually. And it just taught me one thing that I always need to go back and visit Sauvignon Blanc because for a lot of years there, I've just written it off, mainly from our uh, friends across the ditch in New Zealand because they destroyed it for me. But when Sancerre is good, it is great. This is a 2017, so much a a warmer forward, fruit forward year, very, very rich wine, entirely stainless steel, made from a a fabulous producer in Jean-Marc Roger. You know, but it was... It was only about twelve bucks a glass, like you know. So it was twenty five dollar bottle of wine. It was utterly delicious. Uh, I didn't have Good. it with anything. I just shared it with a smile and some friends, and uh, but it was utterly delicious, Luke Morris. And did it have any minerally really... minerally characters to it? Was it, it quite? It, it had all of those minerally characteristics. It had that kind mm. of chalk, uh, stone, stone hints of stone fruit without being in your face orchard cut citrus anything like that it was very fine very very fresh almost steely almost refreshing um but it was it was a bit a little too on the richer side to be as refreshing as like a riesling but still delicious all the same uh, not quite textural but that kind of blossomy mineral note was just exquisite what about yourself mate what um oh. past your lips this week besides beer and the aforementioned red wine in the cooking implement no, other than that cooking weekend, I, I, I've sworn off it for for the week since then because I, I had my fill. I yes. will be um, uh, going down to the um, office tomorrow and I'll probably get myself a bottle of Sparking Shiraz going back to the old <laughs> favourite basics. But there's a, there's a new one that's come in from the McLaren Vale, so I'll... Um, I'll grab a bottle of that. and Will that, will that be oh, your tipple I'm... of choice around the Christmas lunch table? I know you said you'll be bringing some port earlier in the year on this very podcast, but what will <laughs> you just be I sitting actually... on? Uh... No, to be honest with you, my, my, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, my Christmas day is usually spent with a, a lot of long driving, so I'll be uh, sober as a, uh, a jury member, and I will uh, probably have a beer at the end of the day just to knock off and then on Boxing Day, I'm going to go over to a friend's house and have a barbecue, and that will be where the sparkling shiraz will be consumed. Uh, mm. Pre-dinner drink will most likely consist of some Riesling crisps and cheese. Ooh, fantastic. Well, what a delight it has been uh, getting this podcast up and off with you this year on Luke's Talk Wine. Next year we'll be back as Luke's Talk Riesling Mark II. Um, yes. But as, as we bring this season to a close, you can check out all the highlights on Apple Podcasts or Spotify listeners, wherever you get your great podcasts from. Thank you, everybody, uh, for your support. 
You can find us at Luke's Talk Wine at Gmail. We are we are coming back. Are you coming back, Luke, next year for another season? You're already taking over as the uh, man in charge of the uh, hosting duties here, Campbell. <laughs> I, I am coming back. We're doing a little bit of a, a flip around next year. I don't know what we're going to do in the. We're going to have one show in January, I think it is, just to uh, yep, keep the, the wheels turning over, just uh, in a little bit of a gap. But then um, uh, we'll be back and firing later in the year. Yes, yes. I'll be hanging out. I'll be uh, talking as little little bullshit and as much truth as I can. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to talking more wine with you, Luke Morris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nick Brown. Thanks, Luke Campbell. In the words of Tony Barber, keep smiling and bye for now. Vinified are the wine cellars specialists. We're Australia's only personal sommelier service. Our sommeliers work with you to build your cellar. Our aim is to bring you the wines from the freshest new producers, all based on your tastes. We can come to you, source your wines, present tastings. Think of Vinified as your wine concierge. We can do retail, we can do tastings, we can host your dinner parties, or we can procure you that rare wine. Vinified is proud to be associated with Luke's Talk Wine. www.vinified.com.au